Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Two years ago, I had the privilege of and the difficulty of of preaching and officiating at my own mother's funeral. Uh, She died very suddenly. It was a shock to all of us. Uh, And I was put in charge of this event, and uh, I was honored to do that. In attendance was my Aunt Kim, who is this really wonderful and staunch Baptist. And she was always a little suspicious of, like, all this. <laughs> you know, this is not her love language at all. Uh, and so I was a little worried, you know, because she looked really upset during the whole funeral by what was happening. And, and after the funeral was over, there was a long receiving line, and she, uh, she embraced me. Uh, and she's not huggy, but she embraced me and wouldn't let me go. And she said, I want you to know um, how proud I am of you. And it was so beautiful. And I really like listening to you because while you get into all that stuff, you do preach like a Baptist. <laughs> I don't, I don't even know what she meant, but I think she like meant it as a compliment. So that's how I received it. Well, today, this morning, I, I really want us to give ear to a Baptist. I want us to listen to the Baptist because I think John the Baptist has one of the most invasive and, uh, and difficult and um, unrelenting words to offer us. But I think it's the needed ingredient. I do. I I think it'll help us if we listen to what he has to say about repentance. So I'm going to speak from Luke chapter 3 about the word that John was given. And I want to say three things. It was a word within history. It was a word from God. And there are beautiful results of this word. But it is a word within history. And I want to begin in verse 1 because I want to see if I can read all of the names that are in this passage without messing up. So here we go. Verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. I did very well. Um, I want you to notice the items in the passage. Like this passage is a little ridiculous. It's a little ridiculous because of all the things that are mentioned, but it's actually incredibly important because what he's trying to do, what Luke, the physician, Luke, the author is trying to do is to show you how this man named John and how his voice uh, really did take place. These things really did occur uh, in in measurable time and in recordable history. Lots of items are mentioned, right? Uh, Two Roman politicians, Tiberius and Pilate, two Jewish politicians, Herod and Philip, clergy are mentioned, Caiaphas and Annas. Uh, dates are mentioned, times are mentioned, locations are mentioned, even a dad is mentioned. W- why? 
Well, two reasons. There are two reasons all these details are given to us. Here's the first reason. Luke, in chapter 1 of his gospel, was trying to uh, convey that he was not making up history. So he says in the first chapter, it is my attempt to write an orderly account of things that occurred. So he's saying, look, I'm not giving you legend that's built on myth. I'm trying to convey to you something that people really saw and touched, people that you could have hugged and debated, people that you could have eaten lunch with. I'm trying to give you the facts. That's what Luke is saying, and so he's giving you the facts. But more than that, Luke is trying to show how John is a prophet in the same line of the Old Testament prophets. Because in the Old Testament, when a prophetic work was introduced, and remember the prophets were the social critics of Israel and Judah. They were people that were possessed with grand ideas uh, that come uh, from God. And, and whenever those books were written down, the first verse of the first chapter of almost every single prophet begins the way Luke chapter 3 begins. Just to cite some examples, here's how Isaiah, the you know, primary prophetic voice of the Old Testament, begins in his work. The vision, this is chapter 1 verse 1 in Isaiah, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, this is how the prophetic work begins. In my 13th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, so he's being slightly specific and a little neurotic, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. It was the fifth year of the exile of King Joanakim. Okay? Now, Jeremiah the prophet, another major prophet, chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, the word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. What do all these intros, these prophetic intros, have in common with each other and in common with Luke chapter 3? They all mention dates, events, places, and politicians. Why? Because the prophets are trying to communicate that their work happened within time and space. And Luke is trying to communicate that John was real. And he had a real voice that threatened real kingdoms and shook his part of the world. And I think this is really important to think about the word within history. Because the Christian religion is not founded upon your liver shivers. Or like if you feel it. Or if your heart is strangely warm, like I'm not discounting any of those things because our faith would seem hollow and tinny, right? If we didn't have feeling. So I'm not discounting it. I'm just saying that's not the foundation of it. The foundation of it is something actually occurred. That's why we profess in the creed that Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Like these things happened under like last lackluster politicians, right? But these things actually did occur. Therefore, we have a historical spirituality, a historical spirituality, because, and by the way, this is exceptionally important and very pastoral because you are a historical being. You're a historical being with a timeline. You're either a boomer 
or like me, a Gen Xer, and we're amazing, or, or you're like a millennial, and you're still finding yourself, or you're like a Gen Z, and we don't know yet. Like, time will tell, right? You either know who Guns N' Roses is, or you don't, or you know who Jethro Tull is, or you don't, and that's just sad, uh, right? But, but, or you have scars on your body, and there was a time when you didn't have those scars, and those scars are there to remind you that time is real, that history occurred, that you were once a man or a woman without those scars, but now you have them. We are uh, people of Kronos. We're people of time. We're people who live on a timeline. And the word of God is not so sacred that it would distance itself from dirty things like history and timelines, but in fact invades them through ideas and speeches and words and books and letters that were given to us in time. And this culminates, of course, not just with John the Baptist, who raised his voice in time, but with Jesus Christ, who was not only the word spoken, but the word embodied within history. And so we have a word within history. That's why these politicians and, uh, and uh, clergy and places were mentioned. That's point one. Point two, this is a word from God. Our religion centers upon not a hunch or a whim or some sort of temporary social movement, but it's a word from God. That's what John received, like the Old Testament prophets before him. This is verse two. Please follow along. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the word of God uh, comes to John. The word of God came to Isaiah. The word of God came to Jeremiah. The word of God came to Daniel. The word of God comes to all the prophets. And now the last prophet, the last gasp of the Old Testament, it comes to John. Now, let's just do a brief taxonomy of the word of God, that little phrase. Um, Notice it's a word that comes to John, not just zeal, not anger, not energy, uh, not love. It's a word. In other words, God is trying to articulate something true into the world through the mouth of this wild man who lives in the wilderness. And I want to just underscore for you again, God's truth, God's wisdom, God's love, God's righteousness is not a needle in a haystack that you have to like spend your life finding. Instead, God is by God's own self-declaration, a God of communication, that God is here to tell you something. The reason that we don't hear God is because of us, not because of God. Like God is always communicating to you every moment of every day. He's speaking wisdom to you. He's speaking truth to you through the created order and through special revelation that we have in the revealed word. But God is a communicating, speaking, addressing, revealing, disclosing God. That's why the whole creation is created through the word as God speaks it into being. It's why Jesus Christ is called the word because he's ultimately here to clarify something about God's core concern for the human race. So we have a word, something that is communicated about God, but it's the word of God. I think this is really important, that when we're dealing with scripture, you can't assume that it's going to be uh, uh, like flaky or only concerned with sort of temporal thoughts that people have. You know, scripture is here to give you to communicate to you things that are of ultimate concern. That is, that there is an ultimate nuclear reactor, a core to, to being, 
whom we know as God, and that you ultimately are an everlasting being that has to have reconciliation with that everlasting center. And scripture is here to address that problem. Like scripture is not interested in other things. And that's okay to have other interests, but you can't assume that scripture will be similarly interested to all the things that occupy your own mind and time. It's about God. Like the Bible's about God. So it's here to communicate something to you about God, not so much like John Bon Jovi, great as he is, or Johnny Depp's newest hairstyle or fidget spinners or anything else. Like, in fact, when we come to scripture, we have to think this is going to deal with things ultimate. And therefore, I have to be ready for that. I have to be ready for that. You know, this is why it's really important that Christian preaching Christian proclamation chiefly has to do with declaring something definitive about God who has enfleshed himself. But very often Christians get distracted and they start thinking that Christian proclamation is, is about felt needs or little tips to like live a little bit better, like how to adjust better, like how to have drug-free kids or tips on how to have a better marriage or how to be a man of integrity or how to have better self-esteem or a successful life. And they're filled with harmless stories that often involve pets uh, um, it's not, it's not dumb, but no, it's dumb. It just is. Uh, like the thing is Christian preaching is ultimately to tell you something about God, like to disclose something about God and how you can be paired up with God and bonded to God in such a way that your life is drastically helped. Uh, and so, so it's the word of God that John was given. It's something ultimate. That's why John is not frivolous. He's very serious actually about what he's saying to the world. Now, what form, when the word of God visits a prophet, like, how does that look or feel? Like, is it audible? Well, sometimes it is audible. Rarely, but sometimes it is. Like, when God addresses Abraham, whom I know isn't a prophet, but a patriarch, when God addresses Abraham, he's very specific. He's like, hi. He didn't say that. <laughs> Abraham, you're going to leave, uh, you're, you're going to leave Iraq, and you're going to move with your family and I have a place. It's very specific, and I want you to go there. That's God speaking audibly. Sometimes God speaks in pictures. Like with Ezekiel, he gives him a bunch of very interesting visions that communicate great truths. To Jeremiah, he tells Jeremiah to do things that are like parabolic messages to Israel. So he tells him to do things with his body that evidence something of of, of God's will or design for his people. But so he speaks through, through tactile experience. It seems that God spoke to John. God's word to John was based on the word he had already spoken to Isaiah. Did you catch that? That John was deeply moved and affected by this passage from Isaiah, which we'll get into in a little bit, and saw his mission as fulfilling Isaiah's ancient cry that somebody would make the world level for the coming of Yahweh. Anyway, God gives John, in maybe a variety of forms, this supernatural intelligence, like a second sight, an ability to see people's core need, not the things that distract us day to day, but the core need. And our core spiritual um, need, right, is a need for a great turn, or what John calls repentance. Now, he's not making that up. That emphasis is found in the prophets before him, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and so forth. Um, the Hebrew word for repentance is shuv, which means to turn. The Greek word is metanoia, which means to have an inward change. But both entail this notion of we're facing in the wrong direction. Now, here's, here's the basic uh, assumption regarding repentance or behind repentance is this. God is reality. The human condition in its vexed state uh, means that we say no to reality 
we run away from reality into unreality until unreality becomes so scouring and life killing that we have sort of an epiphany that unreality needs to be abandoned and we need to run away back to reality again. That's repentance, running toward reality, going home, in other words, to the source that we have left. And John is calling people to that kind of repentance, but not an inward change only, but an inward change that manifests itself in this horrifically embarrassing ceremony in the wilderness, where you basically, in front of thousands of your compatriots, out yourself as a notoriously troubled, vexed, defeated, destroyed human being who is so devastated by life and your own uh, horrific designs that you need a showering from God, an external cleansing that really mirrors an internal like shower, a moral shower, where you become clean again. John wants people to out themselves publicly and say, I need to be forgiven and I need to repent I need to repent. You see, John knew a secret. He thought that this would be the gateway to people's strength. That if they came and discovered this difficult reckoning, that their lives were toxic and that they needed to be cleansed and that they would publicly demonstrate their toxicity as well as their need for God, that would be the gateway to all spiritual benefit and personal development. And let me tell, say this to you. And this is, is, I think this is about as true as anything I could say. Without repentance, you will never get well, like ever. Without repentance, your family will be as rotten today as it has been in the past. Like without your own personal individual repentance, our country will still be a mess or it'll get messier. Your institutions that you love will be corrupted. Like so much hinges upon repentance. That's why um, Bar Kokhba always used to say, great is one man's repentance for it brings healing upon not just himself, but the whole world. Like if you repent before God, everyone gets better. Everything gets healed in a way. Um, that's his secret. He knew that spiritual dynamism is connected to this act of humiliation, of repentance, of admitting in your core that you've gotten things terribly wrong and you're searching after God to make things right. Um, And by the way, one of those good things that comes with repentance is this beautiful awareness of the forgiveness of sins. That's what he says in the passage, right? It's a baptism of repentance for the remission of the forgiveness of sins. So I'm now going to read to you a portion of a sermon by J.C. Ryle, Anglican bishop and a genius. Read everything the man has ever written. You won't, but you should. Um, So in, in his sermon, this is what Bishop Ryle of yesteryear says. Notice in this passage the close connection between repentance and forgiveness. We are told that John the Baptist came preaching the baptism for repent for a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. We must carefully bear in mind, and this is very important, that no repentance can make atonement for sin. The blood of Christ and nothing else can wash away sin. No quantity of our repentance can ever justify us in the sight of God. And then he quotes the 39 articles. We are counted righteous before God only for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ by faith and not for our own works or deservings. It is of the utmost importance to understand this. And while we say all this, we must carefully remember that without repentance, no soul was ever saved. We must know our sins, mourn over them, forsake them, and abhor them. There is nothing meritorious in this act of repentance. Repentance does not pay the price for our redemption. Our salvation is all of grace from first to last. 
Yet saved souls are always penitent souls. And here's the line. For why would a man grasp after forgiveness if he claims to have no sin for which he must repent? Forgiveness doesn't make any sense unless you recognize that you're a sinner in need of it and that you begin to have an enormous distaste over time for your sin for which you need to be forgiven and from which you need to be delivered. That's John's message. That's the word of God that he was given. Then there's like this gorgeous result of the word that John was given. And he had a vision of it from Isaiah the prophet. This is verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain shall and hill shall be made low and the crooked uh, shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all the flat, all flesh shall see, see the salvation of God. See, John saw that he was present in the world to sit in the second chair. He was never going to play first clarinet, ever. He was never going to have the limelight. He was never going to be the Messiah. He was never going to ultimately fix people's problems. He was here to create a leveler world, more equilibrium for the Messiah uh, when the Messiah would arrive. Um, And he was deeply inspired by Isaiah's landscape pictures. There's all this landscape and terrain territory in this passage and I think that's, it's a metaphor for people, actually, right? The mountains are very proud people that need to be taken down a notch. And John certainly did that. And the low places are people that have been devastated by life and are aching for some sort of solace. And John brought the solace of forgiveness of sins. Uh, but, um, but I think that repentance is a difficult message for us because aren't we both? We are both lofty and lowly at the same time. And John is here to design us into a Kansas plain where it's all the same, like when you're driving through Kansas or Nebraska, right, endless cornfields, but to make us level so that we're in a place of acceptance. Um, So what he does is he comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable in order to create a level place uh, for Yahweh's return. Um, by the way, that's very difficult. I mean, in a sense, it has a, a, a sweetness to it because all of us have sunken places in our lives that desperately need to be leveled off. We desperately need uh, a break. You know, you need a break this morning, frankly. Uh, but also, we're very proud, you know. We're right about a lot of things, like everything, all the time, until we discover we're not, like, at all, like of us is completely fraudulent, right? But we don't know it. Like, you don't know what you don't know until you have something shake up your world, like the Word of God to tell you, no, 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 you're very proud, actually. And that pride's going to get you into a lot of trouble. And John is here uh, to beckon us to recognize the places where we need to be leveled. You know, I, I always find that it's a tell. How do we know when God is really working on the inside of us? It's when we accept humiliation. When we start seeing humiliation and a true sense of self as a gift rather than a curse. Like whenever the difficult word comes to us, we don't automatically hate it and hate the person who said it. And start talking badly about them to everyone who will listen until they avoid us at parties. Um, But instead, 
Instead, we start having a place within us that says, you know, that might be right. I hate it, but it might be right. That's when you start to level out. Anyway, so I want to stay in this repentance territory as we think about our own lives in light of this passage. So I've said something about the word within history, the word from God, and the result of this word. Now let's stay in repentance territory and remember my Aunt Kim, who who always preferred listening to Baptists. Uh, Can we have a preference for this wild man in the wilderness who offends us, who comes into our lives and tells us that we're ridiculous and that that needs to change? Do we permit the interruptive, raspy voice of the Baptist named John, the difficult word of God, uh, can we hear his call to repentance? Because I think that not just through John the Baptist, but God sends us these little moments in life that are like that are John the Baptist-like. They have a flavor of John the Baptist. And I wonder, by the way, if our current circumstances in the last year and a half, and I'm not saying they're all a blessing because they certainly are not, but I wonder, I wonder if our collective societal nervous breakdown could have a potential silver lining. Could it be a John the Baptist moment? Because what happens within a nervous breakdown is you are, um, you're brought low and you discover all sorts of things within yourself that you didn't really know were there or didn't know were there to the degree that they really are present, right? So we're all making all sorts of dark discoveries. In fact, I have a friend who says, and I have to read this because it was very funny. This week they said um, that in this season of life, all of our faults are on methamphetamines, is it's totally true. We're methed out of our minds. Like all of our faults are infinitely worse right now because our resources to subject them to like conscious, like morals or, you know, that, that bandwidth is all gone, at least for many of us. And so um, I think that this could be a John the Baptist moment because it reveals things in us that we might not want to see. And it calls us to repent of them. Um, and and um, by the way, I don't think John the Baptist moments are easy. That's why they killed him, after all. They wanted to silence him and silence the prophets because nobody wants to hear that they're doing it wrong. We live in a, uh, in a current cultural moment of stupefied affirmation where everything about you needs to have a trophy. And that is absolutely pathological and insane. Um, it's a bad way of looking at the world because there are many things about you that should be affirmed. But if God doesn't affirm them, like we're not going to from this pulpit either. Like, it's just not my job, right? Like our job is to represent the word of God as it's given to us. And if it calls us to repent of certain things, that's my job to communicate to you as well to myself. Um, but, but even though it's a, it's a word that's easy to resist and we don't like to hear it, that certain things about our core needs to change. What, um, I think if we take the hit, if we receive rather than reject the difficult truth about ourselves and the message to repent, we can be like radically healed, like radically healed. Our families can be radically healed. Our institutions can be radically lifted. Life can be much better for you. It doesn't have to be the way it was yesterday. It doesn't at all. It can be much better. And um, so where do we start? Where do we start? If we actually want to lean into repentance and don't want to hate it all our lives, how do we lean in? Where do we start? Two things and then I'm done. Here's the first one. You have to start with you. We have to start with ourselves. You cannot repent for anybody else, however mad at them you are. Um, You have to get personal. We have to stop fixating on other people. 
Uh, you know, we have this sick and sickening need to critique, to blame, and to focus on the faults of others, frankly, because it's easier. But, I, but again, I say unto you, as I hath said before, the common denominator of all your problems in life is you. The golden thread of all your crises is looking at you in the mirror. That's not to say you aren't a victim of stupefied and horrific events. You are. But if you want to know what the, what the key to most of your problems is, it's you. And therefore, John is not pointing his bony finger at all the people that you hate today. He's pointing it at you. Uh, and it's not about the government. And it's not about our president or the former president. And it's not about your boss. It's not about your team members. It's not about your department. It's not about your spouses. It's not about your children. You know what? God will deal with them. And that, those things do matter. I'm not denying it. But the thing is, I think sometimes we are not theists. I really think we're not theists. I think we believe that we ourselves are the incarnation of the infinite. And if we don't show justice to those people that we hate in some, usually it's on Facebook, but in, in some passive aggressive or aggressive aggressive way, if we don't make them pay, they'll never pay. Friends, that's atheism. Like, are you kidding? Like, God, like there's a God, you think, you, do you think, you think anybody gets away with anything? Now, if you're a judge or a cop, yeah, you got to enact some justice. I'm not doubting that, but I'm talking about like day-to-day -day stuff, day-to-day -day stuff. You really can count on the judge of all the earth to do right. Like he's really good. He's very capable. I just encourage theism in church today. Yeah, just, you should, you should try it. Um, you can't repent for those people, friends. You can only repent for you. Thomas Merton, a monk who was, uh, it was interesting, he really hated Protestants, but he loved Buddhists, very confusing. Um, and he had an affair late in life with a nurse, very complicated. But he said this toward the end of his life. He said, I've come to realize that I cannot change anyone else at all, and the more I try to change them, the more insidious I become. Friends, if we individually don't repent, we add to the dysfunction and sinfulness of everyone else's world, including the worlds of those people that we despise. John the Baptist points at each individual this morning and says, well, what about you? I don't care about them today. What about you? Because it's you who are out of accord with God, and it's killing you and making the world more hellish. So what about you? Are you a good person? Do you do the right thing? Do you keep your promises? Are you noble? Are you true? Are you consistent? Are you generous with your time? Do you notice people that are suffering? Are you full of fear and anxiety that like paralyzes you and everybody else around you in your sphere? Do you make people miserable? What about you? Because we're going to have to deal with that at some point spiritually and not constantly deflect. And that's a hard word, but that's where it has to start with you. And then the second word, you have to start at step zero. You have to start at step zero. What do I mean? You may know that the 12-step program for addicts has it within it 12 steps. But the first of these steps is a real doozy. Because um, the first step says you have to admit that you are powerless over something in your life and that your life has become unmanageable. That's too hard for some people. So AA, invent, Alcoholics Anonymous, invented step zero which I think is awesome. And step zero says this. 
I might have a problem. <laughs> right? It's very judicious. It's like, maybe, not sure, might be my idiot brother, might be my mother, but it might be sometimes every other week for a half a second me. I like that. It's generous and tender. But maybe it's you. Like, maybe. So here's what I'm asking today. Like, can we say that there might be a problem with, like, how demanding we are of perfection from other people or how we speak to our eldest child or how we lie a lot about the books we've read or the movies we've seen, how we gossip about our challenging, sometimes overbearing coworkers or roommates, how we gripe endlessly or are satisfied with nearly nothing, how we sideline others who aren't like us, you know, little things like that. How we, like, disobey God constantly. You know, yeah, little things. But maybe, so I'm just offering you a generous word today, pastorally, like maybe, maybe this is a problem. So I think these are the ingredients of New Genesis. I'm going to talk more about repentance next Sunday. <laughs> None of you will be back, of course, after this <laughs> onslaught, but don't worry, it'll get nicer. But next Sunday, we're going to delve more deeply into this subject. But I think the beginning, well, it begins here. The renaissance for your person, the new genesis of your being begins here. We have to deal with ourselves and we have to start somewhere, and step zero is not such a bad place. But here's the pastoral gospel word of lift at the end, friends. God is not only the leveler of our lofty bits of proud terrain. He also is the minister to our sunken nature, because we're all hurt, right? We're proud, but we're so sad, you know? Like, we're really sad, and we're hurt and aching for some word of reconciliation and love that might accept us. And that's what we get in the man for whom John paved the way. The man for others. The man who came to say that I'm not here to condemn the world, but I'm here to love it into loveliness. And so the good news of repentance, friends, is that God hasn't written us off. He wants us back, and he will do anything, even die, to bring us home. Amen. They took your life, they could not take your